Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and its publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Lacey M. Johnson, is a Houston-based artist, curator, professor, and activist. She's the author of Trespasses, a memoir, and co-creator of the location-based storytelling project, The Invisible City. Her work has appeared in Tin House, Fourth Genre, Creative Nonfiction, and Triquarterly, and been anthologized in The Racial Imaginary, edited by Claudia Rankin, and Literature, The Human Experience. Johnson currently teaches interdisciplinary art at the University of Houston, and is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her second book, The Other Side which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and an Edgar Award, and which was named one of the best books of the year by Kirkus, Library Journal, and Houston Chronicle. Poet and memoirist Nick Flynn says this about The Other Side. In this brilliant memoir, Lacey Johnson offers us a guide to the impossible, how to reconstruct a past when the past itself is shattered, each memory broken into pieces left rattling around inside us. Sometimes flashes of poetry are all that we can find in the wreckage. Sometimes these flashes are all that can possibly save us. 
brought together for brief, burning instances, and then let go. The other side bristles with life and energy, and to read it is to be transformed. And author Matt Johnson adds, the other side is the sonic boom of a powerful story meeting an even more powerful storyteller. It's hard to say anything about a book that leaves you this breathless. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lacey M. Johnson. Thank you so much for having me. So you've said it's taken you 13 years to find the words to write about an unspeakable act of violence, that of a man that you once loved who kidnapped and raped you in a soundproof room that he constructed for that purpose. Within the book itself, you talk about the difficulty of knowing what to say when people ask you, what are you writing about or what is this book about? And I'm curious because you talk about how that answer has changed over the years. And now there's a little distance between the publication of The Other Side and now what you say now about, about The Other Side. What, what is The Other Side about? So I think it depends on who's asking me. Um, you know, I, I've become much more frank when people ask. You know, in the, in the book I write about sort of trying to find euphemisms to describe what had happened, to sort of think about the thing that I'm trying to uncover. And one of the things that I realized is that there's so much taboo and silence around the topic of sexual violence. Um, I'm grateful that in the last few years that's really started to change. And, you know, in my wildest, most self-congratulatory moments, I think maybe, um, the other side was part of a historical moment of a lot of women sort of beginning to speak about the unspeakable. And so all that momentum around women talking about sexual violence sort of made me understand sort of how that taboo functions and why it's in place, who it protects. And frankly, even though women are told that it protects them and it protects their reputation, I believe that's actually false and that it protects men who rape, that silence. And so now I'm much more comfortable if someone asks what my book is about, I say it's about being kidnapped and raped by a man I used to love. And I do so knowing that if they have uncomfortable feelings about that, about my admission of that that had happened to me, it has more to do with them than it does with me. And that I can be a successful, powerful woman and also be a survivor of sexual assault, and that those things are not mutually exclusive. And um, that was a really powerful thing to realize in the process of talking about the book publicly. And when you were writing The Other Side, were you conscious of other memoirs about sexual violence or trauma? And more specifically, were you um, interrogating any sort of popular narratives or tropes that you weren't comfortable with that maybe you were seeing in popular literature around the topic? I was. So two books um, that I think represent the different kinds of ways of talking about um, sexual violence and, and assault and trauma, really. One was Alice Siebold's Lucky. And I read that book, and that book I think Alice Siebold is so brave, and I'm so grateful to her for writing that book. But that book, I think, really very much participates in a kind of narrative about, um, or, or one that was easy for the public to acknowledge, even if it wasn't easy for her to write. And I don't mean to suggest that. Um, but it's easier for the public to accept the idea of rape as you know a sort of stranger jumping out of the bushes and attacking a woman who is a virgin and had no fault that that is a very clear line that is a wrong thing to happen 
And and it you know, and that kind of historical narrative is very much a, a wolf and a sheep and the virgin and the monster and and I I that it that wasn't true for my experience. And so I didn't find that book as useful in certain ways as a book like, say, Catherine Harrison's The Kiss, which is so much more nuanced. You know, The Kiss is about a relationship, a sexual relationship that she had with her estranged father. And though it's not necessarily about a specific moment of sexual assault, I thought that it was such a radical book because she was very willing to admit the ways in which she made a lot of really bad choices and that she had agency in the matter and that she chose to go along this path with this person who was influencing her and manipulating her and that doesn't change that it was wrong and that that seems such a powerful thing to interrogate that I could be able to say the ways in which I made bad choices and I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that, but that doesn't change that what he did was profoundly wrong. Well, the way this, the ways that you complicate the, the monster versus victim trope, I think elevates it more to an artistic pursuit or, but it also in reading the others, the other side, I couldn't help but project myself in wondering um, how difficult it was to conjure up the memories of tenderness in those times of love and that you had with your ex who did this to you to make it complicated. Just the, the places you would have to go uh, internally with honesty. Is, is, yeah. am, I, am I projecting? or No, uh, no, no, you're right. You're right. It was, it was really difficult because in the intervening years, um, since the, you know, since I was assaulted by this man I had loved, it was so much easier to think of him as a monster, to think of him as, you know, evil incarnate. Um, but as I started writing the book uh, and thinking about it, and then, you know, honestly, in some therapy before I started writing the book, um, I w- had to ask myself, like, well, if he was so evil, then why was I in a relationship with him? Then I really made <laughs> some bad choices, and I and I sort of really am a bad judge of character, um, and so I had to look at those memories and and make myself think about the ways that I I really did love him, and you know that's the really complicated thing about being in a relationship with a person who's you know abusive, whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse or verbal abuse, is that I would say most of the time. They're not like that. They're not being abusive. They're being loving and tender and funny. You know, there were, you know, looking back now, I'm able to think about, like, he was really funny and he made me laugh and a lot of times made me feel really special and swept me off my feet in this sort of, you know, in a in a kind of cliche sort of way, but I was 19 and what did I know? But that is how I got trapped was because I, I loved him. And so that made me, gave me an excuse for the violence and for the assault. And, um, and, and it just became a kind of trap. Um, but looking at that helped me understand, well, I wasn't, even though, yes, I did make bad, bad choices and I made some mistakes, I, it also gave me some room to forgive myself and, and gave me a place of compassion for my for my 19 year old through 21 year old self 
Well, you do all sorts of things in the book that complicate perhaps the easiest way to tell tell this story. Um, and part of the reason we're here today is because I was at a talk that you gave a couple years ago. I don't know if I have the title right, but it was basically about writing against chronology and memoir. Um, it feels to me like you have an inherently interesting story that people want would want to read if you'd written it from beginning to end in chronology. So tell us about why it is important in your mind um, not to tell it that way what you gain from from a different sort of relationship to time when you're telling the story. So I think, you know, one of the things I talked about in that talk was how memoir for me is a, is a mode of investigation, uh, a way of using your own personal experience as a lens through which to bring some aspect of human experience into focus. And there's nothing about chronological time that is investigative. You know, if we were able to experience, to interrogate our experience as it happens, then there would be no need for memoir because we wouldn't have to turn back and, and look backwards. We would all understand everything perfectly, exactly as it happens. Uh, but that does, that's not the way that it works. And so for me, sort of complicating that structure, writing against chronology and writing backwards or forwards or kind of revisiting the memory and reenacting the ways we visit that memory and those memories in writing um, is just another kind of way of thinking about truth. You know, in, the, in that talk, I, I, I mentioned how truth and nonfiction, to me, we can talk about in three ways. We can talk about authenticity um, which is whether or not it kind of represents a, a true kind of experience. Um, veracity, which is whether or not the facts are right. And mimesis, which is a representation of reality. And that mimetic part of truth was one of the things that I was really interested in writing this book, of reenacting the way that I access these memories. Um, you know, the one of the things I struggled with a lot in writing the book was how to structure it. You know, for a while it was all the little vignettes were chopped up and ordered in in really kind of confusing ways. And, and it worked. And it was just having a certain kind of conversation. And then I tried doing it all chronolo chronologically and, and went, you know, back and forth. And, and there are something like 27 different articulations of the structure um, on my computer. But as I was doing research for the book, I was visiting, I was reading all these, you know, rape myths as part of my research, which is light, light reading. <laughs> um, and I, eventually I kind of found my way over to the, um, the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. And reading about the Labyrinth, which until that point I didn't realize was different from a maze, because in a maze you have wrong turns and dead ends and... And, and, you know, tricks. But in a labyrinth, there's only one way in, which leads you sort of in and in and in and in into the terrible center where something like a minotaur might eat you. And then you turn and go only one way back out. And that seemed to me such a good metaphor for the way that I access these memories, that once I sort of get started on the trail of thinking about my children, say, that it often leads me down and down and down to the terrible center where I'm eaten by the Minotaur. 
And then I, you know, and, and then I could hardly ever find a way out. So the other side was supposed to be my way of coming back out. In case you just tuned in, you're listening today to Lacey M. Johnson talk about her book, The Other Side. One of the really peculiar things about The Other Side narratively is you mentioned how writing against chronology allows for investigation. And also, I think, a, a certain sort of mimicking or mimesis around memory, um, which is also something that the past tense does. And yet you write a lot of The Other Side in the present tense, which I find really you pull it off because, but it's really interesting because um, it doesn't seem like an obvious choice. Present tense is something that's going to tumble you forward, doesn't allow for pauses, but you have this, I, I hesitate to call it a device, but you have this really interesting thing that you do, particularly in the beginning, because um, the present tense really starts off the other side in an electrifying sort of hair raising in the moment, in the scene way. But you have these these moments where the narrative doubts itself. And I'm wondering if this is your way to create space from the present tense. Uh, so you say, I stumble, and then later on the page, or I do not stumble, and and then you, your breath makes fog, or maybe it doesn't make fog. And there's this pause where, even though we're still moving in the scene, there's a, a recursive uh, conversation happening. Am, am I am I going down a, a dead end in a maze? No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's interesting to think about it like that as a way to create space. I mean, I think I was just trying to be, again, as truthful as pro as possible. You know, I was I was thinking about as I was writing the book. You know, the kind of different ways of talking about the self, and you know, the other side is almost entirely. I feel like like a secret. It's just a, a private. You know, rather than a, a thing that I'm able to admit personally, interpersonally, which, you know, as we were talking about earlier, um, it's hard to admit to another person when I'm looking at them, oh, I was raped by this person that I that I loved. But if I'm but I can admit that to myself privately in a secret and privately in a secret. I can also admit that I doubt these memories that I am certain of having. So I'm certain on the one hand that I stumble but if I look really closely at the memory, I'm not so certain, and it's not so clear. And I'm really certain, you know, as I talk about later, I'm still certain that the person I talked to in the police station is a male detective, but the police reports tell me it was a female officer. And so that, that doubtfulness of my own authority and my own expertise in what happened to me, I think is part of that investigation of, of not necessarily what exactly happened, because I, I feel like I know what happened, and I know exactly who did it. But the investigation is of why the difference? Why am I choosing to remember it this way as opposed to the other way? Why is this a story that's important to tell myself about the past, about who I am, and who I'm going to become. And so I think that's what's at play in those moments of doubt. And you have these notes at the end, which feel relevant to this conversation. And one of the notes, um, a lot of the notes are about neurology and neurobiology and the, and the investigation of memory from a medical and scientific way. But one of the debates seems to be about this term narrative decay. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a divide in the scientific community whether 
we ha we experience narrative decay in the same way with memories that were traumatic memories versus non-traumatic memories. Um, can you talk about what you believe regarding that? Maybe I don't know if if you can define narrative decay for us and right and maybe tell us what side of that debate if you have a side. Sure. So the the debate seems to be that there was a study done. Um, I think is the note that you're referencing um, of people. Um, who were witness to the 9-11 terror attacks. And um, one version of the study said that that traumatic experience, talk, you know, sort of talking to these people um, afterward, that, that that memory didn't didn't decay in the same way that normal narrative memories do, you know, was his shirt green or red? Like the, it, those sorts of details don't necessarily matter in narrative memory. Um, which is part of the reason that eyewitness testimony is a lot of times kind of uh, shady and sketchy. Um, but uh, so one one version of the study said these memories decay normally like other memories. And another version of the study or some other people um, conducting a similar study said um, that, no, it does not decay, um, that these memories are locked in a way that other memories aren't. And from looking at that research and then other research and, you know, sort of reading in the journals and the, in the different scientific journals and, and thinking about the theory of it, I like to think about it as a kind of, um, that when you enter a traumatic moment or traumatic things begin happening, that all of your sentence, sen senses, excuse me, are heightened and your brain begins making a file of the moment, a re sort of recording of the moment. Um, that is, the metaphor I like is a sort of m much better resolution. And it's all the sounds, all the smells, everything that everyone is saying. And, you know, there are um, sort of um, self-preservation things at work and in, in, in why people would do that. And that that bigger file takes a lot longer for the brain to process than it does other types of files. And there are certain things, I think, in that file that are locked and other things that are not. Things that the brain deems unimportant decay, like other memories, but other things that are very important do not decay. So that's my, my thinking on the, on the science. Um, hopefully I didn't put you on the spot with that too oh, much. Oh, no, a little bit. Of, <laughs> right, we're going to get a lot of nasty letters maybe from scientists going, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But Well, let's let's have our listeners hear a little bit of the, the pros from the other side. Okay. The man I used to live with asks who might be expecting me. I consider whom to call, who could best handle answering the last phone call I ever make. Not my parents. They aren't expecting me. I have just moved into my new apartment, and I plan to spend the night unpacking. Yesterday, my parents took me to the store to get new sheets, new towels, a new comforter for the bed. The mattress hasn't been delivered yet. Mom said, I don't think we can afford to keep setting you up all over again like this. I lie and call my good friend. She'll tell me later that she knew something was wrong. She spends the whole night driving around looking for me the old apartment I used to share with him, the new apartment, my favorite bars downtown, ditches beside the road. He says, I'm going to rape you now, and it doesn't matter that I am on my period, 
because he pulls my tampon out by the string and lays it beside the mattress. The police will find it later and catalog it into evidence. My blood pools on the clear plastic sheet, which they will also catalog into evidence. At first, I have a body, a wild animal body I throw and thrash against his cage. I almost break a limb before he catches me in his hands. I growl and hiss and bare my teeth. But then, my body is not a wild animal body. It is a human girl body. The two arms pinned across, the two legs spread, a tomb. It's the mind that goes thrashing so wildly. The body remains calm. The body undresses and lays itself down. You've been listening to Lacey M. Johnson read from The Other Side. In the book, as, as this excerpt shows, uh, you don't call people by their name. You have capitalized replacements for it. So the man I live with, the strange man, the older sister, uh, are the names of the characters in the narrative. Is this mainly a form of uh, protection because your ex is still free and in, in the world? Or does it serve some other additional narrative um, purpose in, in your mind? I think it is it is a form of protection because um, my ex is still free and out in the world. Um, and so I, I do want to protect the people that I write about. But at the same time, it also just felt false to call them anything else than their real names, you know, and that was a decision I made really early on. You know, I don't like to say his name, his real name in my life now, much less in a book. Um, it's kind of like Voldemort, you know, and, and I know that that sort of carries a little bit of power, like refusing to say his name. But in this book, Rather than choosing not to say him or say he who must not be named, I'm saying the man I used to live with, and I'm making every way I addressed him and every way I, I address everyone in the book in terms of their relationship to me, which sounds maybe egotistical, but I feel like it sort of locates power in myself that I didn't necessarily feel like I always had in my real life, that these people are only defined by their relationship to me and that I am the sort of center, I am the sort of center of agency and authority in this book. So it was a device to just kind of give myself a little bit of power. Well, you also write about your parents, um, close friends, ex-lovers. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was curious if you had any fear or concerns around either upsetting any of them in terms of how you told the story or fears that you might not tell the story the way you want to because of fears around my, people that you are actually sure. in good terms with? I was concerned about my parents and how they would read the book, you know, and how they, I would portray them. But when I told them I was working on the book, they both said they weren't going to read it. And so that gave me a little bit of freedom, I think, um, to write what I felt like I needed to say. And I also just pretended nobody I was writing about was ever going to read the book. I imagined 
I would, you know, the visual that I used when I was writing is I imagined I was standing at the mouth of a really deep cave that had no light inside of it. And there was no people inside it. There's nothing inside of it. Um, and I would just put my mouth to the mouth of the cave and very softly just speak my story into it. But inside that cave, my voice, my small voice was getting bigger and it was reverberating. Um, and then later I imagined that at the very back of the cave, there were an agent and an editor and they would give me lots of money. But, um, <laughs> but they were the only two people who would ever read the book um and and Sounds everybody like else a good plan. <laughs> right yeah it was a plan i, th I think I, I think that should be everybody's business plan um yeah well your parents did have some issues or trouble with your first memoir trespasses right? it's true yeah they did. they did yeah my well you know oddly um my you know growing up and when i started sort of thinking of myself as a writer um you know, I was a poet, and I would write poems and bring them home. Like, I, I gave poems to my mom. You know, this is in college. And I would write poems about motherhood that were, I thought, kind of complicated and trying to say something that I couldn't necessarily say on my own with, you know, oral oral language spoken language and um and she would uh she would like put them on the fridge um so it wasn't quite you know starting the conversation as i that i th imagined them having um and she you know my mom has a high school education she doesn't read a ton um but when you know, and then in contrast, my dad would come to my poetry readings, and, and you know, and my parents aren't together. My dad would come to my poetry readings, and he was really supportive of me going to graduate school and everything like that. And so when Trespasses came out, I thought, I thought my dad would get it, and my mom would be bothered, um, because in Trespasses, I think I, uh, the much more complicated figure is my mom. You know, she changes a lot in that book, and. And, you know, I really think of it, and I don't, I don't think I went into writing Trespasses imagining that she was going to be such a complicated um, kind of figure in, in the book. Um, but then after the book came out, my, um, my mom read the whole thing in one sitting, you know, went through like two boxes of tissues, I think. She was just so beside herself with pride that her daughter had, you know, written this book. And she was, you know, kind of unconditionally supportive. And she really kind of enjoyed the way that I portrayed her as a kind of complicated person. And it, and it also then started a conversation about art making and how I approach my work and how she approaches her work because she's an artist as well. Um, and it really kind of brought us together. But, you know, in, in contrast, my, my dad um, didn't like the way, I don't even think it was the way he was portrayed. He just didn't like being portrayed, mm -hmm. um, being written about, and not being able to control his own narrative, or sort of me taking his memories and changing them, um, and so we've we've um, it, it created some problems for that reason. Well, I, I can say that some of the more moving parts in the other side are your portrayal of your parents after their divorce, mm -hmm. their new lives, their expression of regrets. Um, in their lives, like this, this sort of transformation or moving into a new space in the book adds sort of a, 
I don't know, a subtextual resonance to the main story in, in some way that both dimensionalizes them, but adds a richness, I think, to the, to the story that you're telling. Thank you. <laughs> can, can you talk about, can you talk about, um, their choice to include becoming a mother yourself in the book? Was that always mm -hmm. an obvious choice or was that in the process of writing, uh, something that you came upon and then had to debate? I think it, it always had to be part of it because I think there was a, a, a way in which I had come to terms, I thought, with what had happened before I became a mom. And not that it, I was all better, because I don't think you necessarily get all better, um, before I became a mom, but I was sort of at a, a kind of even place. And then having my daughter, the birth of my daughter, just plunged me into this really deep depression and brought up um, a lot of things that I realized I hadn't fully resolved. You know, birth is always a kind of traumatic bodily experience, um, but hers was especially um, sort of physically traumatic for me. And, and then having this person, this small helpless person who I thought would help me get better you know, I had this really kind of naive, crazy idea, like having a baby and having this baby to love is going to make me all better. And this sort of like crazy symmetry of like, you know, to be really graphic, like I had um, sort of been, you know, a thing had gone in against my will. And now I was pushing a thing out with will with only with willpower. <laughs> and that was, you know, this like, cosmic symmetry. Yeah. Um, uh, but that obviously did not happen at all. And, um, my daughter wasn't, she didn't give me anything at that time, which, which sounds like a, a crazy thing to admit, or, or I didn't understand what she was giving me, um, then because she, she just needed so much from me more than I felt like I was able or willing to give. And that resistance to giving her all the affection that she wanted because they never stop. Babies never stop wanting affection. Like there is no end. They never say like, okay, that's enough. Like I've had enough <laughs> love. Thanks, mom. Um, there's only more. And I felt like I needed, I needed to be filled um, is, is how I felt at the time. And then over time, I understood the ways in which her love for me was just so unconditional that she loved me despite that terrible mistake, those terrible mistakes of understanding when she was a tiny little baby. She loved me when I was angry and when I was, you know, in, inaccessible and when I was depressed. And there was no just as there's no end to their want for love, there's no end to how much they can give you. And that realization for me that being loved is not a, just about what you give, it's also about accepting love from others in return, um, that that was so much the sort of path of healing um, for me that it, I felt like it always had to be in the book. Mm. Um, and I don't think I even realized all the ways in which that was true until I was writing it. In case you just tuned in, you're listening today to Lacey M. Johnson talk about her book, The Other Side. Will you say prior to, to writing The Other Side, 
you tried to write about anything but this event, but that somehow anything that you wrote about, it ended up being about it nonetheless. C- right. Can you talk about ways in which it would appear in, I don't know if it was in, in hidden ways that it would appear in your writing pre, pre the other side? So um, pre the other side, I wrote poems mostly. Um, don't look them up because they haven't really been published. And there's a reason for that which is because they were terrible. Um, But um, I would write about, I don't know, I was just always writing about this threat or fear without calling it that. And just, I, I feel like I was always kind of writing about the experience of ongoing trauma without ever calling it that. Um, and without ever looking at it straight and, and seeing it for what it was, I was always kind of writing around the subject, you know, a, a huge, enormous perimeter, miles wide around this unspeakable experience. Um, and, and when I finally realized that I was sort of way outside what I was actually wanting to write about, then I had to sort of turn and look directly at it and 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 try to to come at it head on. Um, but you know that I mean, besides, I mean, trespasses is not about that trauma. That's a a really different kind of book. And I leave this whole section and the discussion of these events completely out of that memoir, um, just because I knew that they needed. An entire book of their own. Well, you mentioned how you had this naive expectation around the cosmic symmetry of giving birth, of mm-hmm. pushing out a child with your will. What was it like with regards to creating an object that you birthed into the world in the sense of this book? Um, there's a lot of research. I know you, you engage a lot of research around narrative decay and other mm-hmm. things in, in the notes of the other side, but there's also research about the benefits of of putting a form around traumatic events, writing as mm-hmm. a form of, um, I don't know if healing's the right word, but right. Um, you've created this book, this object, it's external to you. It's been on top of that received with literary acclaim. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, if at all, has that changed your relationship to the memories and to the, the emotion, the emotional weight of this? So, I mean, I think it was therapeutic to write the book, but I didn't write the book as therapy. You know, I was trying to make a work of art. I was trying to make literature. Um, so I wasn't trying to make myself all better, and I had no expectation that that would ever happen. Um, you know, that was the other narrative that I was resisting, is that you go through a traumatic thing, and then you write a book, and then you're all better, all done, right? Um, but... You mean that's not true? No, 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 no. It's not true at all. And I had no expectation that it was going to be true. And I didn't want to suggest that, you know, I had gone through this, you know, challenging, arduous um, experience, and then I came out the person I was before any of it happened. You know, I wanted to say I went through this challenging, arduous task, and I'm a different person from when I started, but... I also love myself now, and I'm I'm glad I am who I am. Um, 
And so um, the, wait, what was the, what was your original question? Well, I mean, it was about making it, uh, the story external. It, it exists oh, yes. now outside of yes, you. Yes, thank you. Sort of like a child. Oh, right, sort of does. like a child. So it exists. And then once I, um, after I wrote the book, you know, not immediately, but, you know, it's been two years since the book has been out almost, and about three years since I finished working on it. So I don't feel the same kind of urgency around the memories that I did before. I don't have as many nightmares as I did before, which a lot of the, you know, the sort of nightmares came when I was working on the book because I was actively addressing these memories all the time every day. And so I don't have the same kind of urgency to go back and revisit these memories and try to understand them. So I don't have as many nightmares. I don't really look for him as much, though, occasionally. Um, and, you know, so there was a, a kind of, I came to peace with it, which isn't like catharsis when it was cleared and gone and washed and made shiny and new. But I really came to terms with it and, and came to peace with these events. And they didn't feel like an urgent, agitating thing that I needed to understand. At the same time, so there was one kind of journey that I went on writing the book and, and came to terms with it in a certain kind of way, and a really different, in some ways more powerful journey that I went on after I started talking about it and giving readings in public. Um, the very first time I gave a reading from the other side, I was at University of Houston. Um, I had been invited to read from my forthcoming book with um, some of my colleagues there. I teach now at University of Houston, and I had gone to grad school at University of Houston. So many of my mentors were in the audience, you know, faculty members who I'd taken literature classes with, not even who I had been, you know, I had been writing with who knew sort of this about my life, um, as well as acquaintances, people I work with, students, et cetera. And I was terrified. I was so terrified to read from the book. Um, and I read the, the opening section, and I got to the place where I'm giving my, um, my testimony, uh, telling the story to the detective in the office. And I get to the place where he says, you know, start at the beginning. Tell me the story and start at the beginning. And I say, I don't know where to start. Like, does it start with you know, the rainbow bridge at my preschool? Does it start with the cat tongue, like sandpaper on my cheek? Does it start with the potpourri, like the little crock pot of potpourri on my mom's kitchen counter? And suddenly reading it in that context, I was, those details struck me as so sad. Um, and they hadn't struck me as being sad before. I started crying and I totally kind of lost it. Um, but, you know, it, in many ways, it was also kind of sort of pulling off a Band-Aid. But that, that moment when there were no repercussions, nobody, uh, I didn't lose my reputation. I didn't, um, you know, the world didn't fall apart. These people who I admired came up to me afterwards and they said they were so proud of me. And, and in, in almost every case, that has been the narrative of people sort of expressing gratitude for me saying this thing that they themselves have not been able to say. 
And I've been so struck and so shocked and saddened by how familiar my story is to so many people. I always thought it was like a crazy way out there thing, but it's a lot more common um, than I think I realized. And, and that is frightening and sad. Do you see the other side having an activist purpose? It doesn't sound like it's the motivation of writing the memoir at all, but um, in this regard, uh, around combating silence and, and finding solidarity? I think it has taken that function. I didn't intend it to be activist when I was writing it. I was thinking, I have held this silence for so long, and I want to break it now, forever, and shatter it into a zillion pieces. But that is an activist um, agenda, you know, which I didn't, I didn't realize at the time, and I wasn't thinking that. Um, but that became my purpose later, um, when I was talking about it and lecturing and um, sort of visiting various people, that that, that activism um, became a part of the broader project of the book. Besides, you know, there, there's this object here which has covers and pages in between and, and words on them. And that is one kind of project, but the one part of the project that is. But the broader project of the book is to sort of change the conversation around sexual violence and domestic assault and, um, you know, the sort of broader uh, way we talk about we talk about and within um, rape culture. And it sort of dovetails with the other movements, I think, of like, yes, all women on social media. Yeah, I, absolutely. Definitely. You know, yes, all women um, carry that weight. The project in New York um, with the young woman, Emma. Um, I'm uncertain how to pronounce her last name. I believe it's Sokowitz. Mm. Um, carrying her mattress around... Um, as a part of as an art project, as her senior thesis, I believe, um, sort of represent and draw attention to um, an unpunished rape, and she was going to carry it around every day until her rapist was expelled. And yes, all women came about after um, you know Elliot Rogers took the lives of so many people in California because of his sort of entitlement that he felt to women's bodies. Um, at the same time, there was the hashtag why I stayed and why I left after um, Janae Rice and Ray Rice, um, the sort of conversation and kind of release of the footage of um, him beating her. And, and then she married him shortly afterward anyway. Um, so all of these things are sort of part of the same, that sort of historical moment of women saying the unspeakable, um, talking about their truths and um, doing so without fear of retaliation, of the consequences. You know, one of the things um, that was revealed in each of those social media campaigns that, that you're mentioning is the backlash and the trolling of those women saying those things. And I even experienced it myself. Um, I participated in Yes, All Women. And I believe I tweeted um, something like... Um, you know, what I fear for my daughter is not falling her head or falling off her skateboard and hitting her head. It's men. And I received so many hate tweets <laughs> about that admission 
that I was a terrible mother. They called me names that I won't repeat on radio. They, you know, death threats. Um, that that, and one of the things you know that that re- reveals is what is at stake in these silences, who they are protecting, um, and I I think as women as people. W- w- by keeping silent, we are protecting people who do not deserve our protection, um, and that uh, we should support one another in speaking out um, against it and um, and kind of you know raise our voices together. In case you just tuned in, you're listening today to Lacey M. Johnson talk about her book, The Other Side. If if people are listening who are who are writing or wanting to or writing a memoir. Uh, and are inspired by the other side. And I, I think some of the really interesting and effective uh, tools you bring, like this interrogation of chronology, this use of the present tense, but this sort of self-questioning, um, and then a modular sort of fragmentary and associative uh, way of telling the story. You've mentioned that you have 27 different versions of the book on your computer. And I wonder if you could just spend a, a couple minutes and talk about maybe some of your approaches to how you were judging um, how one would feel better than the other and how why you, why there are 27 versions and why they ended up in a variety of orders. It, it suggests some sort of um, approach that you're taking that maybe some, some writers who want to write about something uh, uh, would find useful. Right. So I imagined... As a metaphor for the process, let's say we've got a box of Legos and the box of Legos need to be assembled into a cube. And so you begin taking the pieces. So I would know, you know, I need to talk about July 5th, 2000. And that has several paragraphs, you know, that, you know, will allocate that to 37 Legos. And I know I want to talk about my kids. So we'll give 37 Legos to that. And I know that I need to talk about writing, and I know that I need to talk about my parents and growing up and this and that the other thing. So I know what all the ingredients are. I have all of these Legos. And I need to take them, and they need to form a perfect cube. So I begin putting them together. And the first cube I make, um, I have 150 Legos left over. And that clearly is not going to work because there's too much on the outside. So I try to make a bigger cube, and then I have... Uh, 300 too few Legos, and that's not going to work either. So I just sort of put it together and take it apart again until it gets to be a cube. And, you know, maybe there's three or four Legos that are extra. And so I I say that's close enough. (laughs) You know, it's close enough. I can leave those Legos out. Um, And so that was kind of the process of sort of figuring out, well, what is the shape that makes all these pieces fit together exactly right? Um, and so in some versions, I was using a metaphor for weaving. There was a lot of um, sort of mythology about spiders and um, who's the is Penelope at the loom. Um, and, uh, and that was a really big part of it. Um, another version had um, Philomela and... Oh, oh, no, excuse me. Philomel was also part of that version because she sits at her, you know, she weaves her tapestry um, to sort of say, uh, you know, that that myth, uh, Philomel's tongue is cut out after Tyrius 
rapes her because she was threatening to tell everybody what he had done. And he locks her in this room and she weaves the tapestry sort of depicting the crime and sends it to her sister who rescues her. And then, you know, they all get turned into birds later because um, it's mythology and, and that's what and that's what they do. Each version was trying to use a different organizing principle and figuring out um, what was the the kind of missing five Legos that were going to really make it kind of lock into place. And when I found and came across the Schrodinger, um, that was very late in the process. That was like the I think the twenty seventh version, and that was the one that. Can you can you tell listeners who haven't read it what you you're referring to? Okay, so I'm referring to um, the Schrodinger's cat paradox, which it, which goes something like: there's a cat in a box. Maybe it would be easier just to read the section um, because I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get it a little bit wrong. But there's a cat in a box, and it's sort of like the quantum cat, like without. There's a tiny little bit of radioactive substance in the box with the cat, um, but the rate of decay in some way triggers some poison that kills the cat. And you can't really know for sure whether the cat is alive or dead until you look in the box, um, is the way I understood it. But uh, someone has corrected me to say it's actually the cat is both alive and dead until you open the box and look because of the sort of quantum superposition of the cat um and that idea of like how the cat can be both alive and dead it worked in thinking about um again the 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 kind of way that I access these memories or the way that I feel about them because in some ways I feel like I I was killed I was killed and I survived at the same time um in that room um, not only in the sense of there was a version of me who died, but also I feel like I was so close to being murdered, I might as well have been murdered. And, um, and at the same time, I also survived because here I am alive, and yet there's another me who died. And so I am both of those things. So there's a sort of superposition of, of you know, that, that happens with grieving, um, in many ways. Well, one of the things that I think is really satisfying as a reader of the other side is is that we're with you as you, you grapple with and struggle with questions of memory and around this issue of being alive and, and being dead at the same time. But what, what makes it particularly interesting as a, a writer who's a reader is that it also, as I hear you talk about these 27 different versions and the questions that come up for how to org- organize the book, it does feel like the other side is also the story of, of someone becoming a writer mm. um, as much as it's the story of this trauma and how to, how to position oneself in regard to it. Um, what, are, what are you working on now? Like, I'm sure people are interested in hearing what you chose. Um, yeah, so what I'm working on now uh, is not what I was planning to work on next. But as I was sort of going around talking to people about the other side, one question kept coming up a lot. And it had it took different forms, but the question basically went, what do you want to have happen to the man who did this to you? You probably want him dead, right? And I was so surprised by that question 
And, you know, I mean, after a while, I wasn't surprised by getting it anymore because, you know, there's a way in which, again, my book doesn't really participate in the narrative of like everything's OK. Like the bad guy goes to jail, he gets punished and I'm, you know, and I walk into the sunset with my, you know, with my husband and my children. It doesn't really do that. And so in some ways, I think some people find it unsatisfying because the bad guy, nothing happens to the bad guy. He gets away. Um, and so then I started thinking about that because to me... I feel like the book is a really powerful kind of justice. Like, I'm not looking for him to be punished. I mean, I don't want him to, like, move right next to me or anything. I don't really want him to see him. And I'm certainly not ever dropping the charges. But um, I don't wish him ill at the same time. I don't want him dead. I don't want him to suffer. Um, and and people have a hard time wrapping their head around that. Um so as I began looking at this idea of justice and sort of thinking about like, well, where did this, this idea come from? This, if somebody does something bad, something bad must happen to them in return, therefore justice. And that's the only way we talk about justice in our culture is this one narrative. And it goes a long, 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 long way back. Um, and yet, to me, that's so unsatisfying and is so much a reason for, I think, so many people being treated wrongly. Um, and when, when, when I trace the, that story all the way back, you know, it goes back to um, the Code of Hammurabi, the first set of written laws. And the purpose of that was not if somebody kills your cow, you should kill their cow. It was you should stop at only killing their cow. Not, uh, you know, there was, there was, justice was run amok, running amok and somebody's cow would be killed and in retribution, the other person would kill the, their whole family, you know, so it was always this kind of one-upmanship. And so eye for an eye was meant to limit retribution at only an eye, not as a, as a mandate. Um, but what is it about that, that impulse to retribution that has so successfully and so pervasively masqueraded as justice for so long. So the book I'm working on now asks, what else is justice? Um, so the first essay from the book uh, came out recently, which is um, On Mercy, which appeared in Guernica in the October issue. And I'm just kind of plodding along working on, on the other essays that will be in the book as well. Well, it was great having you on Between the Covers, Lacey. Thank you so much for having me. We're talking today to Lacey M. Johnson about her book, The Other Side. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>